Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and usually I'm your solo host. Today, however, I'm joined by Aubrey Fox, who is also a writer as well as an avid reader, and most importantly, I think for today's show, a big fan of science fiction. Hi, Aubrey. Hi there, Rob. So Aubrey was on the show with me a while back to interview Dave Hutchinson about his Fractured Europe series. Aubrey, in fact, alerted me to how amazing those books were, and he's actually done it again with today's guest, telling me how amazing she is and saying I just had to have her on the show. So I asked her, and we're going to have her on the line in a moment. But I thought maybe, Aubrey, uh, why don't you introduce her before we get her on the line? Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I only come out of podcast retirement for very uh, important events. Um, So this is my second podcast with you. Uh, I like to think all the podcast episodes are important, but I understand. Well, not all of them have me on it. I mean, that is one important difference. This is true. And we have amazing chemistry. (laughs) Um, So... Uh, today's author is, uh, her name is E.J. Swift, uh, and she has written a uh, terrific book called Paris Adrift, um, which in my mind does a lot of interesting things. And one really interesting thing that it does is it it kind of combines two genres. You get two books for the price of one, in a sense. You get an interesting uh, science fiction book about a young woman who is tasked with this um, time travel challenge that involves essentially saving the world from apocalypse. But at the same time, um, she is the protagonist in a kind of coming-of-age tale where she's a young woman starting work in this Parisian bar uh, and meeting friends and having this kind of rich cultural and social experience uh, in the kind of universe of this bar. Yeah, I thought it was a very rich portrait of a young girl and a community that she finds herself in. Yeah, I thought, what, what I liked is that normally in science fiction books, the characters are kind of a vehicle just for the plot um and in some senses it felt to me in in the the richest part of the book 
that it was the reverse, that there was a kind of plot that was driving the book, but really it was the evocation of these characters and, and her becoming employed in this bar and meeting people and having all these rich relationships that, that that kind of took over the experience of the book for long stretches. And that's unusual for a science fiction novel. Um, I felt like if the book had just been about her and her experience in Paris and none of the other elements, it would have been worth reading entirely on its own. Right. It was a good combination. I mean, I find that uh, those are some of the books I enjoy the best that have both excellent, strong and unique characters and um, in a personal journey and the, the science fiction elements. So lately I've been naming the episode. So you had a suggestion that we call it uh, Tilting at Windmills. and I, Green windmills. At green windmills. That, I think, uh, nails it. So this is the Tilting at Green Windmills episode. And are we going to explain why we're calling it that? Or is that something that's going to be revealed in the interview? Hopefully it'll be revealed in the interview. And if it isn't... Wow. We'll People have will have to read the book. We'll be accountable for this. Yeah, exactly. So we have to weave this into the interview. Yeah, hopefully it'll come up naturally. Okay. Let's get EJ on the line. EJ Swift, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So do you prefer EJ or Emma? Um, I am happy with either, but uh, Emma is fine for today. Your first books, The Osiris Project Trilogy... They were about climate change. This book is, is different. It's about a young woman, Haley, who ends up traveling through time. She changes history as she goes. And I was wondering what drew you to this idea and, and this particular story. I used to live in Paris for about a year. So I've always had um, a real love for the city. Um, it's such a beautiful place. And I, you know, I, I spent about 18 months living and working there. Um, so I'd always kind of had an idea in the back of my head that one day I would perhaps visit that setting um, for a novel of some kind. Um, but I think where the idea for the sort of time travel um, story came from was really my experience of, of working um, the night shift in a bar in Montmartre. And there was something incredibly surreal about the experience of kind of ending the shift, coming out into the sort of daylight world and the rest of the world is kind of waking up and the boulangeries are opening and there's traffic and everyone's kind of suited and going to work on the metro and you're kind of staggering out at the end of this very long shift, feeling very tired, probably covered in Jägermeister. Um, and you've kind of got to get to sleep in this kind of very busy, busy daytime world. And there was something about that experience of, of everything being turned upside down um, and I guess from that, I just kind of thought, you know, what, what would happen to actually really push that strangeness and, you know, go beyond the kind of um, day-to-day real-life experience of that into something that's really, um, you know, really a different kind of world altogether. Um, and from that, I just kind of had this really, I think, quite mad idea about putting a time portal in, in the keg room of of a bar and, and sort of seeing what happened. And that, I guess that was the kind of inspiration for the idea. Um, and the character kind of just grew out of that, really. I think the character of Hallie just sort of um, came, came after the idea of the time travel in a way. But once I had this, uh, this sort of thought of this, um, this young woman who was kind of running away from, from her old life, really wanting to start over and, and, and become new, become a new person. And that kind of married with the time travel and, and this, this idea that through time traveling, that was a way for her to achieve that. Um, I think that that was kind of 
in a long-winded way what I was trying to do. It's interesting to me that you have this experience because some of the strongest elements of the book, in my opinion, are how you bring to life the kind of social world of the bar and the relationships that she has, Haley has, with these friends that she meets. And I'm just curious, did you have a similar experience socially? Uh, do you have, did you develop relationships when you work there that, you know, were similarly rich? Um, I certainly had the experience of, of meeting people from a, a lot of different countries from all over the world. And that was something I hugely valued and felt was a real privilege of, of my time there. Um, you know, the fact that I was able to go and live and work in another country with, with nothing but my passport um, and, and meet all these incre- you know, incredibly interesting people. Um, so certainly that was something I kind of wanted to capture in the novel and to try and, um, yeah, just to try and portray a little bit of, of that lifestyle. And I think it, there's something also about when you are working in that kind of quite, quite intense environment um, under quite a lot of pressure um, not in a way that really matters because ultimately, you, you know, you're serving drinks to people, but the, the sort of busyness of it and the kind of sense of trying to get through the night, it can form these quite um, quite intense friendships, but also they're, they're very fleeting sometimes because people come and go so often in a, in a job like that. Um, you know, people come for a few months and, and they'd leave. You know, I was only there myself for about 18 months um, not working in the bar the whole time. So, yeah, I think that was something that I really wanted to try and... Um, try and bring to the novel um that quite intense but um but very meaningful at the same time those sort of friendships i was impressed how much that everyone could drink and still you know stay on their feet (laughs) and and be awake the next day and even even save the world yeah i could not do that now that's for sure um maybe hallie could uh, but yeah that's that's not something I would be keen to revisit these days. So let's talk a little bit about the time travel element. You know, everyone who writes a time travel story has to invent a mechanism to carry it out. Um, and there's probably as many devices for time travel as there are books about it. And you have an interesting scheme where you have something called an, an anomaly. Uh, you yes. have incumbents yeah. and you have, and, and I'll have to get make sure that you explain the concept behind a chronometrist. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Uh, chronometrist. 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 How, however you like. <laughs> can, can you just describe how you came up with the concept of these elements and how they play out, generally speaking, in the book? Yeah, like what, what is the, the anomaly? Maybe start with that. The anomaly is is essentially the portal um, through which Halley, Halley travels to different time periods, but it's a sort of more of an organic kind of um, being rather than a, a sort of technological fix, um, which is something I was keen to do because, as, as you say, there are so many different um, time travel mechanisms out there, and I was trying to think about something a little different. Um, so it's it's kind of sentient, but not in a way that humans experience sentience. It could be alien, it might not be alien, it might be native to Earth. So I wanted there to be a little bit of ambiguity there um, with you know where this thing actually came from. Um, but the in the way the travel works, each anomaly has one single incumbent, which is the traveller that kind of responds to it. Um, so in this case, um, Halley is the incumbent for the anomaly in Paris. But in terms of kind of where I was... Um, 
where I had the inspiration from. It's really, it was kind of thinking about symbiosis and nature, which is something I've always been intrigued by. Um, and obviously there's, there's loads of different kinds of symbiosis. There's sort of mutually beneficial kinds, but there's also these quite parasitic and sort of sinister types of, of symbiosis, like um, the cockroach wasp is the example I use in the, in the book, which is a kind of wasp that stings the cockroach and then uses it as a host for its larvae. So it essentially sort of hollows it out from the inside. So I also wanted there to be this element with the anomaly where it was both a kind of an enabler for Hanny, um, but it's also kind of the antagonist of the book in a way, because it's the more um, the more you travel, um, the idea is the the anomaly kind of gets hold of you and and eventually you kind of become this disembodied um, being, which is what the chronometrist has become. She was one of the original travellers. And she's sort of travelled so many times that essentially it's kind of eroded her physical being. And she's now this kind of disembodied thing tied to the time stream um, who doesn't have any physical presence in the real world. So that's the kind of danger for Hallie is if she keeps travelling and keeps travelling and keeps travelling, that is what she could become. And uh, so during your answer, Rob himself went through an amazing arc where he, he wrote down a little note to me that said, I want to be an incumbent. But then, he, <laughs> but then he heard about the wasp and then he heard about the thing about yeah. losing yourself. And I think he probably is now no longer interested in being an incumbent. I read the book, so I do know that happens. But it's easy to forget in the beginning how much fun it seems to be to be an incumbent who finds your anomaly and gets to travel through time. And you forget about the chronometrist where you're a disembodied spirit who floats in and out of birds and strangers on the street which is what she basically does to in order to communicate with with Hallie yeah yeah that's that's the end game so uh it it comes at a big cost um but certainly you could have some fun for a while I think and I kind of like the chronometrist although I guess she isn't always kind to the people who she's she hosts (laughs) I mean I thought she was very she was a humorous character except when she she ended up killing a few people along the way, but very almost incidentally to her, she didn't seem to care very much about that. Gee, I, I enjoyed writing her. I quite liked her. Yeah, she she does have quite a warped view of, uh, of life, I think, but then I imagine becoming disembodied would do that to you. Even though... Hallie is traveling through time. There are a number of things that are constant, like the bar, Millie's in Montmartre, where the anomaly is. And there's Paris, which is famous around the world for its unchanging quality, you know, maybe because it survived World War II intact. I mean, one of the things I love about Paris is it does have this incredible history. I mean, as, as any city does, really, but, you know, at times quite tumultuous history um, and there's so many different fascinating time periods that you could go to and explore and and there were some I had to kind of stay away from because they'd already been done elsewhere so well already um but I think also it's kind of um perhaps the allure of the kind of constant element of it was was this sort of sense of Paris as a kind of cultural hub I guess um you know obviously the French are very very proud of their culture and 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 really protect their culture um and I think Paris often has this kind of, um, uh, I guess, reputation as a kind of centre for for that exchange of ideas. So I'm thinking about periods like the Enlightenment, like um, all the writers and artists that were sort of drawn there in the, in the 1920s. Um, and I guess that kind of 
gave me the idea of, of as a sort of potential hub for, for new conversations, new ideas, new movements, like the sort of political movements that in the book that started by Ada Lafour, um, the new Bohemia. So, so perhaps it was that sense of constancy in terms of being a, a sort of portal for communication in a way that, that drew me to it, I think, as much as it's, it's history, because this history is actually, you know, pretty violent at times and, and very changeable. And yet the city itself does retain this very strong sense of um, of place that, you know, is throughout literature and, and film and books and and so many different aspects of, of culture. And I suppose it makes it easier for Hallie. She knows where things are, even as she travels over the course of uh, a century. Yeah. Uh, she ma- she's makes these observations about things that have, in fact, stayed the same. And I think, you know, Paris is quite small as well as a city, so there is... It is quite easy to navigate in that sense. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about how your experience working at a bar yourself inspired some of this book. And in our introduction, Rob and I were, were discussing how much we liked how strong the character development in the book was and the world building, not science fiction world building, but the building of the social network. And what we remarked on in the intro was that sometimes in science fiction novels, the characters are just a vehicle for the plot. But in, in some parts of the book it felt like the reverse that the kind of the character development and the um relationships between the people were more important for stretches of the book than just plot service and so i just wonder i mean a you can tell me if you if that was part of your point uh but b i guess it makes me think about science fiction and maybe the process of writing science fiction if if writers should be thinking about um, character development differently, um, and and if you have any role models that you think do that well, that are able to serve as plot, but at the same time are drawing out really strong characters. I know that's a lot of questions all at once, but I mean, I, I guess I I don't feel that there should be a difference in how science fiction writers approach character to to any other writer. Um, but then I've never really thought about my own writing in terms of writing in a particular genre. Um, you know, I, I love science fiction because it has so many endless possibilities and it's the biggest canvas available to you as a writer. Um, so for me, I think character kind of comes first, regardless of what type of genre I'm writing in. Um, and cert- But certainly, I guess my, you know, my personal taste in, in writing is, you know, I, I'm, I'm most interested in works that... Um, that do have a sort of strong sense of character that are interested in different using different forms different styles you know whether where the writing is is strong and I'm also I guess I'm also interested in in works that kind of push at the edges of of those quite regulated categories so a lot of the writers that I really love kind of uh, are in that kind of borderline area, I guess. Um, so writers like David Mitchell, like Haruki Murakami, are sort of some of my, you know, my oldest heroes in writing. But more recently, um, I'm trying to think of some good examples. I mean, one book that I, I thought was was superb was um, Speak by Louisa Hall, um, which kind of had uh, four or five different, different voices, and it explores issues around uh, artificial intelligence, um, everything from uh, Alan Turing to a sort of you know, self-aware artificial intelligence in the future. Um, and that's a sort of beautiful example, I think, of, of mixing you know, science fiction and characterization. 
another example um i also love sarah hall who is published as again published as a mainstream writer but her novel the carholan army is very much kind of dystopia and again the, the characterization and the writing in that is just beautiful um so i think there's a lot of examples from you know from both in science fiction and in mainstream that that do do both those things but getting back to the plot for a moment one one of the challenges about the time travel genre i think is that yeah it, it's obviously a resonant um, genre because bo- many books are written in using this um, mechanism. People are interested in this idea of redoing yeah. history and changing one thing and what happens. But the the range of outcomes is a little limited, and it's not really a hard science kind of topic. Like, you go back in the past, you change something, and we all know lots of things react as a result. But beyond saying that, there's not much more that you can do. And I guess I, I think of it as sort of a challenge for a writer. I mean, I, I was even thinking about a very popular book like Stephen King's 112263, which is all about basically saving Kennedy from being assassinated. And you have uh, 800 pages of novel, and then basically, spoiler alert, um, he realizes that what he did leads to nuclear holocaust, so he has to do a do-over. Um, and so you think like, oh gosh, all this time spent on time travel, and he really was kind of stupid. He shouldn't have done it in the first place and so i don't know i i guess i i just wonder how you write around it it's a it's a very attractive genre people love time travel books but um where you can take it is a little limited yeah definitely i mean i think once you start thinking about the kind of logistics of it it is quite overwhelming and quite terrifying to think about how you're going to get the the plot to work um and certainly i you know i did a lot of work in in the editing process for it to try and pull that together i think I guess one of the ways I kind of looked at that was by the idea that the book starts in the future and and the the whole frame for the novel is that you start in the future with the intention that the past has to be changed, um, but you don't ever actually go back to that future in the rest of the novel. Yeah, it's it, it is a tricky one. I, I guess I wasn't thinking too much about the technicalities of it because, as you say, I was more interested in in the character and the impact of that time travel, you know, what that does to you as a person and what that means for Hallie and and her kind of character development. And that was definitely, that was the driving force for me rather than than the focus being on the plot, I suppose. Let me just say that I think I disagree a little bit with Aubrey in that I think, you know, time travel books open up a whole world of possibilities. Of course, I guess... Free patent pending. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They open up a universe of uh, potential. <laughs> no, I mean, of course, okay, you do one thing and it's going to change things, but it's fascinating to think about the things you could change or, or not. Anyway, I think that there's a lot of good storytelling that could be done around it, which is exactly what you do. So maybe as a follow-up, let me ask a little bit about the different historical dilemmas and situations that Hallie finds herself in as she's traveling through time. She's she's basically on a, a mission, which she herself doesn't fully understand until later in the book, yeah. to prevent a future apocalypse by, in fact, changing history. And I think one of the messages that comes through is that through small changes, through small gestures, really, you can have a big impact because without giving too much away, I think one of her first assignments is to prevent the construction of uh, the, the famous church, Sacré-Cœur, yeah. which she turns into a 
through really a few brief conversations, uh, a green windmill, which becomes a new icon of Paris. It's sort of an architectural muse. Yes, I, I did. I did want there to be, you know, that sort of sense of, of the, you know, that small actions can make a big difference. Um, and I think one of the fun things and kind of thinking about how the time travel works was, OK, so she's, you know, she's got this mission that she doesn't fully understand. She needs to convince the architect to um, change his uh, his idea for the Sacre Coeur into something very different. She has no idea quite what's going to come out of it. Um, but then I had fun with that, playing then with the repercussions of, of the green windmill and what that um, what that symbolizes then in the present. So that was a kind of um, that was an interesting way to pull the kind of politics of the present day on board. And, and as you say, the, the a sort of minor conversation could actually have kind of ripples that were quite profound in, in the present. Everywhere she goes, I mean, every time period she goes, apocalypse always feels right, right around the corner virtually. I mean, she ends up shortly after the French Revolution, which must have felt and was, in fact, very apocalyptic to French society and the people who lived through it. And then she ends up in the middle of the Nazi occupation of, of Paris, which is another horrific time. Yeah. And then we, we go into the future and we see a world in which Le Pen is a um, an icon that people admire and has taken control of part of Paris and part of France. And I, I just got the feeling that you were reminding readers that we're always on the brink, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that that's definitely something I, I wanted to kind of convey. And, and I think, you know, that sense of how quickly we forget as well, you know, all these kind of sort of endless conflicts. And there's a sort of point in the book where Halley's kind of reflecting on that in, in the, um, the World War II section. Um, and, it, you know, at times it does just feel like there's one thing after another after another. And, you know, when will we ever learn? And I think the book did definitely take that message on more strongly in response to kind of the, you know, current current events and current politics and, you know, the kind of disturbing rise of, of the nationalistic right that we're seeing, the sort of extreme polarisation of opinion and, and popularism. And, and I, I guess I just felt like I needed to engage with that, that, you know, if I was writing about these these periods in the past that you can't really not engage with that in the present as well so i think i think that message became stronger during the process of writing even this becomes more complicated in the context of the book because essentially the the people in the future who set all this in motion basically are creating a crisis to save a worst apocalypse so yeah, yeah. there's there's a kind of trade-off inherent in that like yeah. that you for Haley, the crisis that's set in motion to save apocalypse creates for her a personal apocalypse. But for the people in the future, it is a better result for them. Yeah, they're kind of playing, I guess, the uh, the long game there, but there's always a price for it. Well, I just hope, you know, when we, um, Aubrey and I last did a podcast together, we interviewed Dave Hutchinson, who, who like you, is also published by Solaris. Yeah. Uh, but we interviewed him on the eve of Brexit. Literally was, the night before. Yeah, the, literally the night before. And it was a, a monumental moment. So I hope now that we're talking about, you know, Le Pen and nationalism, we're not, this is not we, a foreboding. Of, we may be the anomaly. Oh, right. Oh, oh my, my God. Uh, well, yeah. hopefully. Is something happening tomorrow that we don't know about? Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So 
Well, right. there, there, was a, there was a worrying moment when I was, uh, I think the book had pretty much been written and edited and signed off and the French elections were coming up and I was thinking, oh God, you know, <laughs> I really, really hope the pen doesn't get in. Um, right, for many reasons right. um but yeah i think you know that that again is, is something when you're writing something like this that is set very much in the sort of present day there's there's always the danger that things will have changed completely by the time the book actually gets out in the world for the record dave hutchinson was horrified at the idea that brexit would actually happen so even though it served the to show the relevance of his plot and so how did the book do? How, how are you feeling about that? And we should note it's only been out a couple months. It's hard to know kind of at this early stage, um, how, you know, how it's doing in terms of uh, sort of commercially, I guess. But I mean, I'm already writing, uh, working on the new book. I, I have, because there's always quite long lead in times for publishing anyway, you've usually kind of, you've, well, I'm, not, I'm normally stuck into something else by the time the book comes out. So can you tell us anything about the new book? Yeah, no, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so um, I'm kind of going back to my, my interest in, in climate change and the natural world. And this novel I'm working on at the moment is particularly inspired by, by coral reefs and the Great Barrier Reef in particular in Australia and the recent bleaching crisis, which has affected coral reefs all around the world, um, you know, as a, as a result of climate change. Um, so it's kind of following um, three women um, across three different centuries, um, past, present and future. Um, and they're linked by a, a love of the ocean. So it's it's very much kind of engaging with, with the natural world and biodiversity and um, kind of the, you know, the impact of industrialization on on the environment and all those kind of issues. But there's definitely no time travel in this one because I think I've done enough of that. <laughs> this may be too general a question, but I wonder if European science fiction writers, you think, perhaps have different concerns or interests than American ones, if you have any thoughts on that or any observations? It's a difficult one because I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm widely read enough to, to really be able to answer that. And certainly, I, I mean, obviously, we don't have a huge amount in translation as well um, that's accessible. You know, I'd love, to, I'd love to read more non-British European science fiction in translations. I think that might give quite a different picture. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess the main trends I see that, you know, I've kind of noticed are tend to to be a cross both, which is the one on the sort of continuing interest in the post-apocalyptic. Um, and then the, on the other side, there seems to be a, quite a movement towards more hopeful, more optimistic narratives. But I, I think I see that in both British and American SF. So I'm, I'm not sure on that one. This was great. And the book is terrific, as we've said. So congratulations. Thank you. No, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much, Emma. Oh, you're very welcome. So we've been talking to E.J. Swift, the author of Paris Adrift, which came out in February 2018 from Solaris. For more author interviews, check out newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction Show link or subscribe to the New Books in Science Fiction podcast on your favorite podcasting app. And I just want to point out, Rob, that we managed to get the phrase tilting at green windmills in the interview itself very naturally. That was the challenge we set out for us at the beginning of this interview. So yes. thanks, Emma. Yes. You're very welcome. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Please, please consider leaving a review if you liked what you've heard today. I'm Rob Wolf, and today I am with... Aubrey Fox. Wolf and Fox, those are names you will never forget. And listeners, uh, we couldn't do this without you, so thank you.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.